Hello, everyone, and I think it's time that we had a talk. In episode two of our series, the herrings are as red as the flags when distractions wave over encroaching control. Now, I believe there's a contradiction that exists at the heart of American political identity. Growing up, I looked to the founding fathers and great men from our history with a childlike joy. It's only natural for you to love your country, right? And I grew up worshiping these guys, spent many years thinking they were the best and reading many books on these and overlooking the flaws and the contradictions. And then I started to read more about our own history. I started to notice more contradictions. And that childlike amazement and fascination with this country and with the people that built it changed. It became a more nuanced view. It became a view centered in something more like Constant, constantly being torn. We have this rhetoric from thought leaders like Ayn Rand that romanticize a fiercely independent spirit, and I grew up craving that, loving that. When I'd read about George Washington, I'd see that independence that he had. And when they all took that pivotal step to overthrow tyranny, no more kings, it always made me feel that there was something great entitled for my life, that these guys did this so I could do that. But even though we have this idea of an independent spirit as central to our nation's essence, we also have a lot of examples that the government and its forces frequently intervene to restrict are those very civil liberties supposedly protected according to constitutional principles. And amid inevitable dissent, questioning policy seems to, you know, if we're talking about those that encroach upon our rights or other grievances, officials always utilize strategies to divert attention towards threats that fracture civil mobilization and the mobilization unity that is required to challenge authoritarian shifts that are already underway. Now, as I began to witness this as an observer, I started to look for a meaning to it. Is this really what our lives are like? It, it, you almost get lost in the absurdity of it because you're hoping that everyone else is seeing what you're seeing too. I don't know if you're in this position or not, but it's almost maddening when a great idea or an actual grievance is brought up and it's in the news and it's in the social conversation and then Taylor Swift gets a new boyfriend and that's all that's in the news and you're at your cookout and that's what they're talking about and you're like what about the thing we were just on we're a country with a very short attention span now occult philosophies suggest that concrete turmoil may signal deeper realms of collective consciousness seeking realignment to allow new evolutionary potential to emerge, much like the yearning of the fragmented soul for greater wholeness. I read this in Blavatsky's writings, published in somewhere around the 1880s, and it's also in the book Three Initiates, published in 1908. Now, these lasting manifestations of the founders' highest ideals rely upon a simulating suppressed, dissociated, or rejected elements from the dominant narratives 
into public awareness. And when I was reading that, it caught me thinking about something. Who have we rejected in this country? Who among the American people is no longer allowed into the conversation? And I don't mean just now in the present. I mean in the entire history of this country. How many ideas, people have been suppressed, dissociated, or rejected? Rejected people would, to me, think of maybe the nationalist. This is an idea that's coming back with some of the popularism that's moving in the country, but it's a misguided nationalism. It's so close, but so far away from an idea of nationalism that makes sense or is not xenophobic. Now, it has good moments and good parts. I fear that movement. But have they not been rejected? Are you allowed to be pride, prideful of your race being white? Or are you shunned for it? I think about those rejected people that are now trying to gain some of their rejection, some of their admittance back into society that have been rejected for so long, members of the LGBTQ and different groups such as that, that has been politicized. I think about the dissociated people of this country. You know, we're a country of people that have been suppressed, dissociated, or rejected because we're a country of immigrants. We're people that are used to this psychological trauma. They're coming from a place where your voice did not matter, and you're brought here with the idea that your voice will matter. But who have we dissociated in the American system? How many middle-class families are dissociated, are now in poverty, are now getting a second job? How many husbands and wives both work? Have we dissociated the family from the American political identity? Who have we suppressed? I think about our black brothers and sisters. Did we ever help them integrate into this society? Or do we blame them for never catching up to us? Or never just getting along with the program? Because we never addressed what they went through. We never assimilated any of these groups. We suppressed them. We dissociated them. We rejected them. They are no longer in the conversation. But going back to this philosophy here, integrating unconscious shadow content within selves and systems enable actualization of freedom that is too often curtailed by incongruences between the glittering myths and the lived oppression. This glittering myths and lived oppressions is what's at the core of this contradiction. I want to love George Washington. I want to love this country. But I think if you want to love this country, you have to be very critical of it. What is the oppression that this country is facing? Are the standards of living falling? Is the government actively, actively oppressing us? The glittering myth is an idea that you can see in your head. Sconced on Mount Rushmore told in the annals of history why for so long many people came to the United States seeking asylum from persecution. And then you have the lived oppression 
that we often live under here in the United States, how can you say to a young man, maybe second generation of immigrants, who doesn't have a dollar, how can you talk to him about the freedoms of the United States? How can you talk to the poor person of any color whose dad is a victim of an industrialized prison system? How can you tell him, what about the freedom of America? You should be proud of that when his father is currently locked up for a charge of marijuana? Now, before we dive further, I think we want to understand what a red herring is. I found this, I found it very interesting. It's a metaphor that originates from tactics used in training hunting dogs, whereby handlers would drag a pungent fish across trails to disorient canines from locating the prey during their mock hunts. Governing tacticians adeptly exploit the same misdirection. Amid this swelling activism and condemnation mounting you know, of these authoritarian policies, conveniently timed threats in the form of scandals or international conflicts emerge across media headlines, and it shifts our attention away from dissent. Rapid legislative action expanding control follows under cover of public distraction. While consciously these articulated national values we espouse are liberty, equality, and an enlightened reason dating back to the revolutionary writings, realities on the ground have always bred contradiction alongside the visions of democracy. Through the Native American genocides to the institutionalized human bondage as the economic engine during the slavery era, this young nation is born many markings of what Jungian psychology might deem as an incomplete shadow integration between expressed ideals and darker impulses driving injustice. And are we always made to live out this fantasy? Are we not guilty of something? If there had been 10,000 enlightened people, could we have stopped the genocide of the Native Americans? Could we have put a stop on the practice of human bondage? And eventually we did. Though it's easy to be magnanimous after you've defeated somebody. It's easy for us to apologize to the Native Americans now that their entire way of life is gone. It's easy for us to want to forget about slavery. But we don't know those experiences and we don't have a good indicator on how much it attacks descendants of slaves today. By considering the recurrent reliance on censorship, subterfuge, and suppression in response to movements demanding greater transparency and empowerment, that's where we glimpse the two opposing visions of American governance. And they're locked in a persistent tension as students of power, examining the symptoms arising when marginalized voices shake cracks in the system proves pivotal. Importantly, a historical through line exists between tactics used by the government agencies to chill dissent and vilify concerned citizens. 
In the mid-20th century, suppression of anti-war and civil rights activism by intelligence agencies foreshadow patterns that continue presently. For example, the post-9-11 rollbacks on privacy rights and the expansion of the mass surveillance infrastructure utilized the climate of fear to implement systems of social control unimaginable previously. What is more contradictory to the American way of life than the 9-11 bill, the Patriot Act? If you haven't read about the Patriot Act, you should go read it. And somehow, through all the legislative and lawyeristic writings, understand what the premise of the bill is. I thought about this at the time, and I thought about it a couple years ago. After I read the Patriot Act, I thought, there's likely a chance, and with the way it's written, it's not much of a leap that this will be put against American citizens very soon. During that same time, I also thought, how could we have let this happen? Well, I don't care if you think that Iraqis did 9-11, if it was the Saudis, if it was the Jews, or if it was Bush. I know we get caught up in these theories and trying to figure out who, who actually did it and everything, but can we not at some point pause and reform and, and as a citizenry go, hey, I was distressed at that time and I allowed you to, to act in my stay, government, legislative branch. This law that you have is no longer needed. I need you to stop it. We have the power, supposedly, to do such a thing, right? How is that conversation never getting brought up? I think I know the answer. You know, with the Patriot Act, the CIA has just put out a manifesto or a letter saying that these white nationalists or these MAGA supporters are going to be the next potential spot for terrorism to come out of. That's their biggest threat coming into this next election. So would it be much of a stretch to say they now fall into the description of terrorist and therefore are subject to the Patriot Act? If you expand that out just a little bit further and stretch it just a little bit more, you now have the power to monitor all any citizen that voted for Donald Trump, and there already probably are, but there's a couple other provisions in there that say you essentially don't have rights if you fall under the designation of terrorist. We have the President of the United States, a man that is supposed to keep the country together, call them terrorist, extremist, and that MAGA Republicans are the biggest threat to democracy that the country has ever known. This is dangerous rhetoric. Likewise with that, the early 21st century and the rise of the Occupy Wall Street movement and its calls for financial industry accountability met with coordinated efforts between authorities and banks to monitor organizers. It also shifted the media narrative towards Occupy's local organizational challenges rather than the dissent's validity. Do y'all remember Occupy Wall Street? 
How about we remember 2008? We remember what this is about. <clears throat> it was a time where you probably lost your job if you were in the workforce. Maybe. I know many people that did. You probably lost your house. You lost your savings. And many Americans went through that. If you were getting out of high school in 2008, 2007, you lost an incredible amount of your time where the economic situation was such that you can just count those years as gone, over. And an organization rose with a valid protest. The banks were being bailed out, too big to fail. They had no accountability for their actions. And now we look at it as a meme, a joke. We can trace these continuums that illuminate reflexes to nip dissent in the bud by defaming messengers rather than addressing substantive issues. Again, as a country, do we not have enough of a conscious, enough of a voice, enough of a position to pause and say, we still have a problem with that thing that you distracted us from. We still want accountability for the financial industry. We still want something to be done about that. Can we not bring that up to our legislative body? I don't think we can because we're stuck in this feed. Ominously, current moves by governors and legislators to prohibit classroom discussions addressing systemic inequality resemble these red herrings. And the attempt to direct outrage onto critical examinations rather than the documented inequalities themselves that scholars do highlight. Again, we have a history with slavery in this country and the inequality that's followed. Why are we not just having a discussion about that? These books, though some paint us, the white man, as bad or evil, are not a fair point of view. Maybe they don't need to be read to children, but we certainly do not need governors and legislators prohibiting classroom discussions. Should it be handled wisely? Does it need to be talked about with second graders? Probably not. Does it need to become a course? Something we can discuss? Do you need to be able to look at the black kid in your classroom as a white kid and just talk to him about his life? If his life is so much different than yours? Wouldn't we find some understanding there in the differences in our cultures, but the fact that we're all Americans? Instead, it's a political issue. Instead, it has divided us deeper. This is just one example. We could do this all day. Truly, I'm sick of having to do it. We're stuck. It's almost laughable. This pattern continues across partisan lines. It's not even a it's not even an issue of whether you're a Democrat or Republican. I favor neither. I don't belong to the Uniparty. We have the FBI intimidating parents that are speaking out against school board policies. Now, folks, FBI on American soil targeting parents for speaking out against these policies which puts them back into that same parameter of that 9-11 Patriot Act. Are they terrorists? If I go to the school board to complain, 
about how we're spending their money in the school board, or if I become engaged in this cultural war, I'm now a terrorist. This is a signaling by the government that it's willing to quash civic activism among common citizens. These aren't influencers. These are parents. When dissent takes form, those in power disfavor, as threatening, these things to the status quo and the hierarchies. The impulse emerged to malign dissenters as dangers, justifying their further marginalization. Folks, we do not need any more marginalization in this country. What becomes clear reviewing such cases is that there must be some unresolved psychopolitical trauma that's festering. And it's regarding fully actualized democracy, accountability, and reconciliation. Until the roots are addressed through some kind of conscious assimilation of these things, the national potential just remains constrained by recurring conflicts between myth and reality. But the occult principles suggest external unrest signals opportunities for inner realignment. That gives me some hope. Now, we have an alchemical reconciliation because you may be asking yourself, like I ask myself a lot, what do we do about all this? That's the whole point of this show. I'm going to present facts and present details, but again, I don't belong to any party. I think they're all inherently bad for the American people. I've always been able to get along with people of all backgrounds, for the most part, as long as we agree on one thing, and that is the government is not your friend. So what do we do? Through my reading, I found that the alchemical reconciliation process might provide some guidance. Carl Jung himself turned to alchemical symbolism to elucidate the inner work of reconciling opposites into psychic wholeness. Political conflicts seem to manifest this same principle, but what pragmatic steps can move individuals and institutions towards transmuting divisions? First, I think we need to acknowledge that unrest skillfully when it surfaces. I think we're rather reflexive in suppressing dissent's expression to maintain order. Chaos is very important. It signals the death knells of rigid structure that are no longer serving our collective needs. The Russian occultist Helena Blavatsky wrote on periodic societal breakdowns enabling new life. I don't know if I agree 100% with that. I think maybe that's a silver lining. If you're in a failed state, certainly you're going to look for the chance for revival. And we see this when there's been revolutions in different countries. There is revival. And some of the people's wants eventually get answered. Yet, when threats to stability intensify, authorities habitually, being conservative, quash turmoil to retain their control. When we act like this, this abhors the dissolution process fixing attention on symptoms rather than the underlying disease. And folks, we're kind of sick as a country because for so long we've been not allowing these turmoils, these fair grievances to play out. 
Because we have a government that's been hijacking the narrative. And so every time that sneeze comes along, instead of that sneeze being allowed to play out, we get medicine. We fix the attention on something else, on these symptoms, rather than the underlying disease causing the sneeze. Now, the occultists encourage a non-judgmentally observing where unrest arises. Now, this can be things from wage inequality protests to election integrity demands. Now, folks, how many more, again, talking about slowing down the pace of the political discourse in this country, how many more elections do we go through with what we had last time in 2020? What's the end date on that? Can we not? Now, we have a January 6th investigation, and we have an indictment on Trump, and they're both media just propagandized out the wazoo. But has anyone ever sat down and said, there was something little funny going on with the voting? Or, I don't think there was anything funny going on with the voting, but we certainly need to look at a new system. And over the last few years, with the Republicans calling for you know, increased voting scrutiny. You have to be there in person. We're going to check and everything. And them also saying that dead people are voting. They're saying that the Democrats are just stealing the election. We go on and on and on about what's causing this, what the problem is. Now, just like the driver's license thing. One side wants everyone to have driver's license. You need a driver's license to vote. And the other side says, that's racist. You can't make our constituents have driver's license to vote. We all need to get together and agree on how we're going to host a fair and open election. We don't need to pause this talk, right? How many open talks do we have in the country right now? We need to come together almost as it's a communication. Stop looking at it as, hey, I'll let my legislator take care of that because we have enough history now to know they're not going to take care of it. We need to come to the conversation. We need to form an opinion on this. We need to be the ones spearheading what our elections are going to look like in the future. And I'm sorry to say it, folks. Why is there no investigations into Black Lives Matter? If there's going to be an investigation into January 6th, there should be one for that. Right? I don't know. I think probably... One of the worst things that happened was when those protests got misaligned with all of those violent riots that happened. Because now you have half of the country that views any kind of civil rights protest about unarmed black men getting killed by police officers in a police state and the systematic inequality being tied directly to videos and pictures of places burning to the ground, and the two are not the same. Just like January 6th, the two are not the same. Do we now know that we had infiltrators in that protest, encouraging, inciting to violence? I bet if we look hard enough, we'll find the same thing in the peaceful protest of the summer of 2020. But we need to take better care than that. Are we going to be satisfied 
when they finish up the investigation and 100 Americans go to prison for the rest of their lives? Is there any accountability for the things that happened at the Capitol that day? Do we charge President Trump for inciting a riot? What is going to satisfy the American people? Because we have half the country that views the January 6th people as terrorists. And we have half the country that views the Black Lives Matter protest as terrorists. And on the phone, uh, on Twitter, people say, oh, now that's a peaceful protest. And you guys are just playing a game of gotcha. Can we all not come together and say both were viable options for true frustrations in the country that no one ever finished a conversation about? We have to use discernment to follow societal symptoms back to their root causes. And this proves pivotal. Skillful inner listening aligns outer choices with emerging collective needs. What begins in discords holds potential for unprecedented unity. Alchemists named this exploratory stage of breaking down mental rigidity or disillusion. Political structures long petrified by obsession with order risk turning tyrannical when confronted by threats to dominance, from the Rosenberg executions to COINTELPRO surveillance. American authorities have violated democratic principles in the name of self-preservation. You have to understand, there's a difference between you and me, the American people, and the government. But the desire to control what we fear causes greater destruction by not reactively allowing old forms to dissolve, space emerges for reintegration and redeeming the suppressed. New dimensions of freedom become imaginable beyond present constraints. The next phase for the alchemist is dubbed coagula, gradually crystallizing dissolved elements into higher order. Beneath radical voices, often lies legitimate frustrations, demanding airing for societies to recalibrate their justice. We tapped Martin Luther King Jr. His journey was ended here prior to its completion. When dissent gets demonized, this process short circuits, but when courageously engaging without judgment, miraculous synthesis between opposing viewpoints start to cohere. Could you not take the person that was at the January 6th riot and the person fighting for racial inequality and sit them in a room and look across the room at each other and figure out there's more between them that they get along with? And I know you've probably heard that beat to death, but gradually this chasm between us and them closes as both sides share their motivation. Their motivation is we're not being done right by our civilization. We just have to finish the talks, people. Reintegration reaches fruition when polarized factions rediscover their common essence. In this case, we were all supposed to be Americans. Despite these surface clashes, all beings fundamentally seek three things. Dignity, justice, safety. Core aspirations bind humanity closer than divisions can ever rend us apart. When 
we, when we float in this shared field of universal longing, grounded solutions emerge that leave no voices excluded. Despite chaos's challenges, reconciliation can unfold. Now, I know I've been pretty much complaining this whole time. Well, but there is a path forward. And I hope there's a path forward. Because as a, a young person, and a person that had an idea about America, I don't see that we're getting a lot of help from a lot of folks. So we have to create our own collective conscious. This pathway forward is occluded in the shadows. But America's democratic experiment has always contained glimpses of a luminous, grand ideal. When we've wrestled with existential threats from fascism to climate change, past generations, they seize their opportunity for evolutionary leaps. Alchemy's transmutive stage remind us that the current upheaval carries similar creative potential. If we can non-judgmentally allow rigid forms to dissolve, space will open up for revolutionary reintegration. So what pragmatic next steps can we use to guide us through this process? Policy issues demand addressing. The wealth gaps, the voting rights, the criminal justice reform, military spending, all these things, foreign policy. We have a lot of policy issues we need to talk about. And if you're anybody engaged in a political discussion in the country, you feel like you're at war with half the population all the time. But a lasting solution to it is going to require psychological maturity beyond our partisan bickering. Each of us is going to have to grow more responsive amidst complexity. We have to curb a reactive demonization of perceived opponents. Now, when the nuclear bomb was created, people worried that maybe we hadn't matured enough to even possess power like that. I wonder if in our highly connected world, where everybody's opinion is there, I wonder if we have matured enough to get beyond this partisan bickering. Or maybe this is that next generation coming up that's going to have the ability to look past that. And they're going to reform the government along the way because the government is out of hand. We don't even have to talk about partisan bickering. We have to look at these emerging worlds that demand our open minds, compassion beyond these borders. And we need to dismantle privilege through empowering marginalized voices. Now, you know how I know we're a divided country and a politicized country? Because the line, dismantling privilege through empowering marginalized voices, is a political statement. Guys, we're not talking about affirmative action here. We're talking about privileges that need to be dismantled. And we need to empower people that have been marginalized. And if your process went to, oh, he wants somebody that doesn't look like me to take my job, or maybe he's a liberal, maybe he wants to push an agenda for it, the whole point of America has always been to empower marginalized voices. We fought a revolution over that ideal. 
if you can't strive to improve your life in this country, there's no country left on earth where you can strive to prove, improve your life. And if you live in a country where you can't strive to improve your life, what's the point of living? Now, esoteric wisdom directs first becoming the change we wish to see. As mystics from Christ to Gandhi declared, outer conditions cannot shift until our inner orientation aligns. Facing unrest by seeking to understand its power source proves more constructive than reflexively attacking challenging messages. And allowing ourselves into liminal spaces marked by not knowing fosters the vulnerability for which creativity arises. Now, if we could no longer fracture dissent from our dialogue, maybe America can emerge renewed from its current crucible, wounds healed into wisdom. The dissolve and coagulate process spiral upwards throughout history. When we have the courage to consciously guide it, darkness inevitably gives way to light. As alchemical dissolution yields to unity, a revolution of values redeems democracy's unrealized dreams, and the next stage of freedom beckons. And folks, that's what we need to do. We have to come together in a way, and I put it in the esoteric frame, because I like esotericism, and I think there's something to be learned from it. But we all have to do this in our own lives, in our own selves. But certainly, we have something to strive for as a people. Now, just because you have the way forward and you have an idea of how to maybe be the change you want to see in the world, there's also the fact that there's a war on your mind being played out while you try to make these changes. Beyond overt suppression of dissent, there's a deeper layer that exists less visible, yet profoundly influential over our collective psyches. Now, <clears throat> Walter Lippmann, a journalist turned father of modern propaganda, helped establish the rise of an engineering consensus. Representative democracy ostensibly gave citizens greater say over their leaders and their operations behind closed door. But Lippmann and his contemporaries like Edward Bernays feared disruptive populism. They pioneered public relation techniques for manufacturing consent to elite agendas using media and spectacles. And this is what filmmaker Adam Curtis dubbed mass therapy. And this serves as a substitute for civic duty. Folks, if you're out there and you're politically active, take a look at what you're active about. Are you into the climate change problem because you care about the climate? Do you understand what you're fighting for? Is the point of the climate change hypothesis, for example, just picking on you for this instance, pro your life? Now, if you look at systematic racism, for example, you can argue that I'm trying to improve my life and that's why I'm involved in this. But if you're involved in it to the point where you also are a one-party voter, 
or you fall into all the race baiting that's going on, you're falling prey to an elitist agenda. You're not actually fighting for your betterment of your life. You're fighting for a political point on a scoreboard. They don't care about us. They just want to control us and push their agendas. For the climate control activist, do you want to be in the reality that they, they've programmed you to believe that you don't have 10 years left on the planet and that human beings are the problem and your life has no value? What are they going to do with all the humans? Is it a part of an elite agenda to depopulate the world? Maybe. There's definitely stuff out there that could say that is the end goal. For my Trump supporters, is what Donald Trump says true? Or is he a part of the same elite group playing you for theater? Using your anger at how your life has gone to win his own popularity, to further divide the country. Is it all a spectacle? These are questions we need to think about when we talk about the mass therapy or this fabricated public relations techniques and this engineered consensus. What is the American consensus? Supposedly, we're at a consensus that we should be fighting a war in the Ukraine. For what? We haven't had a chance to actually argue that point because even though we're arguing the point, billions of dollars are already going over to fund a war where thousands are dying. There's been no negotiation. Think about that. If we're a country that governs itself, we're a people that consciously care about the world we live in, how has nobody paused and said, maybe we should talk about this and get our representatives to follow what we're saying? Or we believe in the narrative that the Russians are the bad guys, and that we have to destroy them before they get to another country. Are we tricking ourselves into another Cold War situation? Now, this shift towards perception management signaled a covert war on your mind. Psychoanalytics and their assumptions about primal fear and desire drove arousal of emotions to short-circuit reason. Rather than coercive control... Influence now worked unconsciously on levels impossible to defend against rationally. Color revolutions spread democracy while PR firms quietly backed authoritarian regimes. Public debates have devolved into distraction. Critical judgment atrophied amidst spectacle overload. The nature of propaganda evolved from lies towards confusion. And such mental hijacking breeds reflexive thinking, and it's vulnerable to manipulation. Outrage grips attention tightly before evidence ever fully emerges. Critical discernment erodes, complexity reduced to facile tropes. Across partisan lines, policies align more with theater than dissent's legitimate frustrations. And folks, we have to get back to a place in this country where we can have legitimate frustrations that are actually brought up by the government. 
you know, we had, maybe we never had it. But it sure would be nice if we could get together as a people and talk about it. Anybody that's voting in the upcoming election, do you believe this is theater? I think it is. This is what scholarship terms an assault on reason. And it alienates citizenry from feeling efficacy over futures beyond just reacting while furthering agendas otherwise facing opposition. Folks, that's the cycle we're on. When I talk to older people and people in this country, we often talk about how no one thinks long-term about any solution in this country. And I think we've been hardwired by our media to just wait for the opposition. We just put out a point, we wait for the opposition, we fight about it, and we move on to the next point, and we fight about it, and we never solve any of these issues along the way. Folks, if we were running a small city and issues came up about the need for clean water, and clean water became a political fight, we don't want those people to have clean water. The clean water has to run through here. It would be six months and we'd never have clean water. The only reason we don't see this stuff is because we're dealing on a mass scale. We're dealing on a scale so large, such a large country, and we're constantly distracted by the next thing that we're forgetting that we never dealt with the first thing. Have you ever sat down and write out a list of policies in the United States that you wanted addressed. How about this? As a thought experiment, over the next year, write down each hot-button political issue that comes up. Remember them. Watch the news and figure this stuff out, if you wanted to. And you will see the feeble nature of our country's attention. And we can't blame this. Can we? There's been an active pursuit to change your mind and manipulate your consensus to feel that you ever actually had a say in the matter. Now, esoteric principles, they warn that such imbalances manifest collective shadow tendencies and the suppressed reason breeds zealotry towards unconsidered ideals. That's why you have this knee-jerk reaction every time something comes up. Because we've suppressed our reasonable skills. We've suppressed reasonable issues in this country. Now, these reactionary emotions segue easily into scapegoating, then demagoguery. In order to resist this reflex manipulation, the mind must hold tension between opposing views to birth a higher synthesis through skilled debate. Disinformation intends to spark fires, not light paths. By recentering inner orientation on truth and empathy, collective psychosis cannot grip a conscious communities. And what I care about is that as a country, we're not just going through psychosis. We're going through this psychosis together. Now, if the mind wasn't bad enough, if I told you there was a war 
being played on your mind, you would consider that bad. But what about on the soul? Most insidiously, there's an effort to commandeer mental processes, often intertwined with those scarring spiritual connectivity, vital for communal health. Technocratic systems privilege materialism and individualism, finding areas not easily measured or managed by such worldviews inconvenient. What arises from and returns to collective soulness eludes hyper-rationalist constraints. Yet wisdom traditions do agree on one thing. Attending the sacred inner stream sustains outward ethical responsibility. Think about our modern church. It's lost its grandeur too and its hold on people because we're such an over-rational people. Now, when logic, logic limits, understandingly, solely to its own terms, it cuts through bonds linking self to whole. Intellect from intuition, head from heart, persons from people. Cold analyzing alone grows ruthlessly distant, adrift without anchoring any meaning. I was asked the other day, what ism am I? Because I was talking to a group of people, and they said, are we nihilist now? Are we optimistic? Are we pessimistic? What is the nature of our generation? And I think this gets to the point of it. Nothing appears worthy beyond selfish advantage in our current soul. Carl Jung has an interesting quote here. He saw an ancient spirit possession rituals as unconsciously reenacting resistance against colonial subjugation of indigenous values to scientific antipathy regarding unquantifiable realms like enchanted nature or mystical insight where outer rights suffered prohibition, inner displacement followed. Now, what does Young mean by that? It's kind of a lot to grab, and it's hard even for me, but I think about when we began in the Western world to colonize natives of different lands. And the story sometimes played out the same. It's like we had an advantage over these people. Were we better than them? I think it's because we've become so cold, so calculating, so cut off from our souls and our natural being as humans. I feel like they were more human, the natives. Oftentimes the story plays out where they come to us, the, the colonizer turns to the land, gets there with their high-tech ships and their armor, and their horses, and their guns, and they're cold and analyzing. They're there to dominate, to steal wealth, to give glory to their king. And the natives view them as friends, welcome them humbly into their homes. Not in every case, but many times. Welcome them as fellow humans or as gods and are childlike. That's written about. The natives are childlike in a lot of ways. And I think Young's saying that. We've become so cold and calculating as a scientific community 
that we have no touch of our soul. We couldn't look at that human and go, I'm about to commit the most atrocious crimes to this person. They were able to look at us and say, hey, how are you? Would you like to be a friend? In many cases, not in all cases, but it did play out. So what about this inner displacement? We have addictive consumption that attempts filling the voids left by suppressed practices supporting this holistic meaning beyond institutional bounds. We watch our sports games, and I love college football, but it's addictive consumption. We have new beers, new types of snuff and dips, and new caffeinated beverages. We have new on the news cycle. Got to constantly be keeping up with the trends. We're posting all the time on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Check our phones too much. We're going from here to here to here. I was just talking about it the other day. The common American schedule is run around their children. So there's their children sending their children everywhere. Their children don't have open free time to imagine. Who's heard of an imaginary friend anymore? You're too busy sending your kid through 15 different classes. And then softball or whatever it is. You're filling your child, all your child's time up. They have no time to be a child. You're training them for the same kind of addictive consumption and its behaviors. It's because we have nothing left in our souls. Yet we've starved our souls endlessly. And it endlessly craves more. If we could look at the soul as a physical being, would many of us look at our soul and know how sick we are? Again, if we could slow down the pace of our conversations in this country, or if we weren't being attacked in our hearts and in our souls, in our minds, could we look at our soul and have a real come to meaning? Realize we're not so different. Realize that the enemy is above us, not beside us. In this sense, there's this ritual tradition that's fostered these liminal spaces for reconnecting sacred sources and communal containers. But besides outright banning of substances purported to enable such cosmic homecoming, authorities indirectly outlaw the contextual set and settings required to guide such sacraments safely back into society's fold. Maybe plant-based medicine is meant to serve this purpose, help us reconnect in a world that's further disconnected from any kind of soul. But we outlawed it. It's not allowed, and you have to be either extraordinarily well-connected, wealthy, and willing to take a risk to obtain these. This hurts the institutional logic, you know, knowledge, knowledge and practices that we don't have shaman. We don't understand a contextual set or setting required to guide someone through these sacraments safely and bring them back into society's fold after. What you have is teenagers taking five grams of mushrooms and going to a party. And then we wonder why they're dropping out or have psychosis. Well, there's a lot to unpack. We don't have the setup for it. It's very dangerous now. But that's not because it's dangerous on its own. It's because we've banned these substances. What gets prohibited turns illicit, then demonized, arresting the development altogether. As with personal healing, 
Collective integration relies upon compassionately remembering disenfranchised, denied dimensions, yearning for acceptance back into the circle, bonding together through resting with darkness. Humanity touches heights of light unreachable alone, where war rages within and without, truth and reconciliation emerges inseparable, and beauty awaits here for us all. Thank you, everyone. I'm glad we had this talk.